Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... There's a limited supply of land on which you're allowed to build homes in places where people particularly want to live, and we have just created a system that makes it really hard to add housing in the places with highest demand. Jenny Schutz on the tangled economics of housing. Jenny Schutz is a scholar of the housing market, and she's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And she's got a new book out called Fixer Upper, How to Repair America's Broken Housing System. My chat with Jenny is about exactly that. But before we get into it, I just wanted to note that this is the third episode of The New Bazaar that's been about housing. It follows those that we've done with Jerusalem Demsis about gentrification and Logan Modashami about the demographic patch that's driving demand for homes. And that is the most episodes we've done on any single topic, because the housing market is a market where it's just impossible to separate the personal from the economic dimensions. It is just endlessly important and fascinating. A home is, of course, the physical structure where we live. And in that sense, I guess it's kind of like any other economic good with supply and demand and price dynamics and all the other things that we can track and measure. But for a lot of people, homes are also thought of as long-term investments, in many cases their biggest investment, which, by the way, as you'll hear in the chat, can be a big problem, both for them and for society at large. And then overlaying all of that, homes are also obviously where people create memories, where they raise kids and grow old, where they establish roots in a neighborhood. And so when analyzing the housing market, it's important not to lose track of any of these dimensions because they all influence each other in interesting and complicated ways. And that is what I liked about Jenny's book. She does not try to simplify the housing market to make a point. She considers all of its complexity, the reasons it's broken for so many people, the entrenched barriers to fixing it, and some ideas that just might work. She shares all this and more in our chat. Here it is. Jenny Schutz, welcome to The New Bazaar. It's good to be here. Well, before we get to your new book, I have some questions about what on earth is happening in the housing market right now. So just in the last few months, for example, we know that housing prices have gone up. So have rents and they have continued to climb. But mortgage rates more recently since the start of the year have gone from right around 3 percent for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage to up around 5% now. This is quite a rapid climb, and I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts on what's happening in the U.S. housing market at the moment. What isn't happening in the U.S. housing market at the moment? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, everything's getting more expensive, but now so is the cost of paying down a mortgage if you take one out. That's what it means for mortgage rates to go up. And you would expect that that would eventually start maybe putting downward pressure on housing prices as well. But what do you think? 
Yeah, traditionally that's been the case that when the Fed raises interest rates and it becomes more expensive to take out a loan, the price of housing goes down, right? Because people can't afford to buy as much house for the same amount of initial down payment and their monthly mortgage payment. We haven't seen that happen yet. Um, and I guess one question is, is it just too early, right? So the Fed says they're they're going to have maybe seven rate increases over the course of the year. Maybe people are still trying to get in now before rates go up still further since they've signaled that. Some of this is probably just going back to the supply and demand imbalance, though, that there are a lot of people who are trying to buy into the market. There aren't enough homes available for sale or for rent. Um, and so prices and rents haven't yet, haven't yet uh, tapered off. To explain something for our listeners who don't follow the U.S. Central Bank, quite with the same enthusiasm that you and I do, when you mention the Fed there, you're talking about the Federal Reserve and how it has signaled that it will be raising interest rates quite a bit this year. And traditionally, you would expect that if the Fed says it's going to raise interest rates, then other kinds of interest rates throughout the economy, including, for example, mortgage rates, will also go up in response. And what you're saying is that the Fed is, in fact, signaling that there's a lot of interest rate climbs coming, but that it hasn't yet had an effect on the prices of homes or the prices of rents just yet because so many people need housing right now and there just isn't enough of it out there, right? Exactly. There's also sort of an interesting dynamic in what we expect from housing prices versus inflation. So the reason that the Fed is raising interest rates is because we've seen inflation running very hot in the last couple of years. Real estate traditionally is one of the ways that people hedge against inflation. So when the price of things are going up, it's good to hold physical assets because those will appreciate in value rather than having your money sitting in, say, a checking account or a savings account where the value, the purchasing power of that money goes down. So one thing that may also be happening is if people anticipate sort of longer run inflation, it's good to go ahead and buy a piece of real estate because the value of that goes up. Um, and that's great also for people who have bought homes because the value of your debt goes down, right? So it essentially becomes uh, more of an asset. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about both the demand side and the supply side of the housing market as it looks right now and to, to take those in order. So if we look at the supply side, so the capacity of the U.S. economy to build homes, to make enough housing, uh, to satisfy people's needs, people's wants, you know, it seems like there could be a few things that are blocking the supply side. One is just that accessing the materials needed to make a home has become a little bit harder because of all the supply chain problems throughout the world. So if the U.S., for example, imports a lot of lumber or other kinds of material and it's harder to get it, then that would slow things down on the supply side. Uh, and I'm kind of curious to know if you think that that is playing a big role? And if not, what do you think some other possible supply side factors might be? Yeah, the supply side is getting held up by a couple of different things. Um, so as you mentioned, construction materials, inputs of various kinds. So not just the kind of lumber and steel, but also things like appliances and garage doors and microwaves. So a lot of those inputs are held up by the same things that are bugging other supply chains, right? So things that are being made in China and maybe haven't been shipped all the way um, or anything that revolves around chips and we're waiting for a chip shortage to ease. So we definitely see some inputs to the physical construction side of housing being an issue. There are a couple of things that are kind of long hangovers in the Great Recession. 
One is that we've got kind of a shortage of construction workers, which dates back to the idea that after the Great Recession, nobody went into construction jobs. There were a bunch of years where we just didn't build homes. And so people who would have started off as, say, entry-level carpenters or electricians didn't because there weren't jobs available. And so we're missing kind of a, a chunk, a cohort, essentially, of construction workers that's not easy to make up quickly. We compounded that by having lower immigration over the last several years. Immigrants make up a pretty large share of the construction labor force. So not enough materials, not enough people. But of course, the biggest factor is really that there's a limited supply of land on which you're allowed to build homes, and especially that you're allowed to build kind of higher density housing um, in places where people particularly want to live. And we have just created a system that makes it really hard to add housing in the places with highest demand. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that that is also, by the way, a big theme in your book, Fixer Upper. So we're going to explore that in some length in just a minute. But even to stay on the supply side for a second, that's a fascinating point about the shortage of workers, because it's not just that a lot of people already in the U.S. may have decided not to get into construction after the housing bust of the late 2000s. But also, as you pointed out, in the last roughly half decade, immigration has become quite difficult. And a big chunk of construction workers in particular are immigrants. And that could also be having a big effect. That also is an issue. That is a supply side issue. It's not just materials. It's the people who actually do the stuff with the materials. So it's like we're missing both things. It's a kind of a double whammy there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the construction industry is aware of this. You know, they've seen these problems coming for a while. So we are starting to see some responses on their side. Um, you know, in addition to the construction workforce being uh, heavily immigrant, it's also very, very heavily male. And the construction industry has sort of woken up to the fact that there's half a population out there that potentially could be working in construction jobs. Maybe we should hire some more women and do some outreach specifically to bring them into the profession. So we are seeing some responses that should help, but those are not going to be kind of quick uptakes. Another reason that's sometimes offered for the housing shortage is that home building companies are just hesitant to build more. I mean, they got burned back in the 2000s when the housing bubble burst. They're afraid of getting burned again. And maybe they're also protecting their profits by not building more. Uh, and in some cases, they're even returning money to their shareholders instead of investing their money in building more housing. So it, it seems like maybe something about the business model of the home builders right now just might be preventing more building. But I, I honestly can't tell how much to make of this. So what do you think? Yeah. I mean, there, there are a couple of structural changes post-Great Recession. One is that the home building industry has become a lot more consolidated. Um, so there were a lot of builders who built stuff in the, in the boom times of the 2000s, got left with empty houses that they couldn't sell. Um, and the smaller builders, many of them actually folded and had to sell out to larger uh, companies. So you have fewer companies that are doing this. Those companies are pretty savvy, and nobody wants to be the one who builds the last subdivision that can't sell. It's often hard to know when that's going to happen. The home building industry has traditionally, it's taken a while to finish stuff, especially if you have sort of a new plot of land and you have to go through the entitlement process. It can take several years to go from the initial acquiring land to planning, putting in the infrastructure, finishing the houses and getting them sold. That means it's often very hard to time where in the market you are. If you're sort of midway through a development, you want to finish as quickly as possible and sell while prices are high. But this may feel like a risky time to start building a brand new project that won't finish for, say, five to seven years. In terms of the demand side, 
You know, as you noted earlier, inflation is quite high in the U.S. right now, and it might just be a temporary multi-year blip, or it might be something that's longer lasting. Some of that depends on the response of policymakers. And so I guess I'm kind of curious to know where housing fits into that landscape, where you had in the aftermath of the COVID crisis and the COVID recession, a lot of monetary policy and fiscal policy that was quite stimulative. And I think still certainly through last year was still quite stimulative. Uh, And of course, we've had the supply side restrictions that you just noted. And so where does housing fit into this idea that you have this like very strong supply demand imbalance? Yeah, the COVID pandemic sort of juiced housing demand for at least a couple of tiers of the market and in specific places. So in particular, white-collar workers who could work from home, many of them you know, may have been living in, say, places like New York or San Francisco in small apartments that aren't that conducive to having a home office. So there was some demand for people in particularly the most expensive dense cities to move slightly farther out in search of a larger space. Some of that is uh, you know, renters buying their first home. Some of it may be just renting another place, but looking for a little bit larger home. Those tended to be somewhat farther out in the suburbs. So we see a little bit of a shift in that. You know, On the, the fiscal policy, For people who kept their jobs but got some extra cash from the government, this was a pretty good period of time, right? And actually, a lot of workers, particularly at the higher income, were saving money over this time period. So if you're not commuting into work every day, you're not paying either gas and parking or for your transit fees. People were saving money on buying work clothes because they were just working from home in their pajamas. So a fair number of households actually wound up saving money and accumulating excess savings during this time period. That puts you in a really good position to increase your housing consumption, whether that's trading up to a bigger and nicer apartment or putting that into a down payment. For some people, this was a really good time. The flip side of course, is this has been a very rough period financially for lower income renters in particular. So if we think about you know a lot of the essential workers, they kept doing their jobs, but those are not particularly well-paid jobs. We know that a lot of renters, in fact, lost at least temporary income because their jobs were disrupted. Right? They couldn't go into work uh, for in-person work. And so for people at the bottom, say 20 to 25 percent of the income distribution, this is a very tight time for them financially. Rents are going up. They haven't necessarily seen their incomes keep pace with that. And they're really the ones who get stuck when the market overall takes off. Yeah, there's another kind of interesting dynamic happening here in New York City where I live. And I I don't want to pretend that this is representative of what's happening in every single city or all throughout the country, although I think something like this might also be happening in places like, I don't know, San Francisco or D.C. or other big cities, Uh, which is that in the immediate aftermath of the COVID pandemic, For about a year, rents were really quite low because so many people were leaving the city. And so vacancy rates all throughout the city went up by a lot. There were just a lot of available apartments to move into. And so what ended up happening was that if you stayed in the city, you could sign a one-year lease on an apartment for a much reduced rent than you could have gotten it for in the past before COVID. And so A lot of people who maybe were in living situations that they didn't really enjoy, like if they lived with roommates but wanted to live alone, well, now they could afford to get an apartment where they lived alone. Or even if you just wanted an apartment with more space, that was now possible. You could move into a better apartment than you could have in the past. But of course, now what's happening is that a lot of the people who left the city have come back, but all the apartments that they would have been moving back into 
are now lived in by all those people who stayed in the city and upgraded into nicer places. And so there's now just a tremendous shortage of inventory. And the prices of rents because of that in a lot of neighborhoods throughout New York have just swung like way up higher than the trend would have suggested from before COVID. In other words, it's not just that the rents have readjusted back to where they would have been in the past. They've actually gone higher. They've overcompensated. So now you have a lot of people whose leases are expiring in those new apartments that they moved into on reduced rents who can't really afford to keep living there anymore. So there's been this huge kind of displacement effect, a a kind of repositioning where people are moving out of those places that they had just moved into a year ago. And if this were like a normal market, I, I guess you'd say no big deal, right? Like if this were the market for toothpaste or something and it had these weird price swings, you'd say, fine, like you need that price mechanism to help adjust, to help the market get back to something like a stable equilibrium. But we're talking about housing here, and this affects everybody, not just those people who moved into nicer apartments and now have to move out. This affects everybody. The price of rent all throughout the city has gone up. And we're talking about people's homes, where they live in their neighborhoods, where their kids go to school. Uh, And so all this can actually be quite a difficult and a damaging thing, even if it is just a temporary blip in the market that maybe shakes out again a year from now when everybody has gone back into apartments that are a little bit easier for them to afford during a non-pandemic time. Uh, That's all just a long windup of asking uh, for your thoughts on whether you think that diagnosis is roughly what you think might be happening in New York City or in other cities uh, and what we could actually do about something like that, because it really is causing a lot of difficulty for people. It is. And, you know, I think we're still too early to make really definitive predictions about where rent and price levels are going to stabilize and what we're going to see about any kind of redistribution of the population, right? So we have this sort of interesting paradox that especially the first six to 12 months of the pandemic, the narrative was everybody's leaving New York and San Francisco. Nobody wants to live in dense cities. Everybody's looking for cheaper housing and sort of feels like being off the grid is safer in some way. Yeah, And we did actually see the census just released uh, county population changes from 2020 to 2021. And you see New York County, which is Manhattan, and San Francisco uh, County have these huge losses of population, like much bigger than any place else in the country. But then, you know, by 2022, rents in those places are back up to where they were before or even higher, which doesn't fit the narrative of nobody wants to live in New York anymore. So, you know, I think there's still a question of are we going to wind up with – New York and San Francisco being smaller in population than they were, but maybe still more expensive because they've essentially replaced somewhat lower income people with somewhat higher income workers, which is possible. Or are we in for a couple of years of the real estate market kind of over calibrating, discounting rents by a bunch when they think people are leaving, raising rents quickly to try to recoup maybe some of the losses that they had before we flatten out? And I I think we don't know in part because We haven't figured out how much work from home there's going to be for how many people and for how long what that's going to look like. So the sort of to the extent that people are leaving the central city for the suburbs or they're moving to another metro area, if your employer decides they want you in one or two days a week, that's really different from they want you in once a month. Um, And my sense is that employers are still figuring this out. Workers are still figuring this out, which means that the real estate ripples probably haven't resolved themselves yet. Yeah, we are in a foggy time, you might say, right? Yes, very foggy. Yeah. Let's talk about Fixer Upper. 
One of the consistent themes of the book is all the ways that the housing market is quite an unusual market, that it doesn't always fit the expectation for what a market would look like just based on, let's say, traditional or generic economic theory. And so let's start there. What is the difference between how economics would expect housing to work versus how it actually works? I mean, the clearest way that what we observe diverges from sort of an Econ 101 model is that normally you'd expect when demand for a good increases and the price and the rents increase, that supply would increase in response, right? So to go back to the toothpaste example, if people suddenly brush their teeth, you know, six times a day and they buy more toothpaste, toothpaste manufacturers are just going to ramp up production and sell more of it. And we don't expect the price to go up in the long run and stay elevated. That's not true in the case of housing. And we can look at places like California and New York, where prices have been going up, demand has been very strong. And for, you know, for 30 years, those places have not built enough housing to keep up with population and job growth. So there's this long-term disequilibrium between demand and supply in some very high demand places. You know, Nationally, we're looking at more like a decade since the Great Recession, which you can explain by some of these sort of long-term disruptions to supply. But the high demand places, you know, neighborhoods that have great public schools, that have good access to jobs and transportation, the places that people most want to live have been underbuilding for several decades now, not because the market doesn't want to build there. Developers would love to be building more homes, but because the supply of housing, of new housing, is controlled by local governments. And local governments have in turn outsourced this to their existing residents, who it turns out just don't want more neighbors. So we have regulatory constraints and political constraints that prevent the market from responding the way it would. There's a quote in your book that I just want to read to our listeners for a second and then, and then maybe get your thoughts on it. Uh, here's what you write. Quote, at its best, a home provides a peaceful private place to return to after work or school, to host family and friends for holidays and other celebrations. Homes are located in neighborhoods, offering connections to a community of nearby people. Owning one's home can help build a nest egg, providing financial security for the future, unquote. So like that last sentence about building a nest egg is kind of different from the others. Uh, and according to your book, it's actually an unhealthy thing to have so much of, of your wealth in your home. So uh, I'd love for you to just elaborate a little bit more on the difference between these two ways of understanding homes. Homes as the peaceful place where we have family and friends and holidays and privacy uh, versus homes as an investment for the future. Yeah. And, and to use the economist jargon, when you're paying your monthly rent or mortgage, you're actually paying for two things. You're paying for the flow of housing services, which basically means the roof over your head and a place to keep your stuff, right? So everybody needs the housing services. If you own your home, you are also building equity in a financial asset that has the potential to appreciate over time, right? And so both of these dynamics going on is part of the complication. You know, in particular, there's some drawbacks to people having most of their wealth in their house. And we'll say for, for middle-income households, home equity is the largest single financial asset, right? So other than wealth and, and housing, people might have a little bit of money in checking and savings or a retirement account, but their home is the single largest asset. 
That, as it turns out, makes people very, very protective of the value of their house as a financial investment. And so in addition to kind of caring about what happens in the neighborhood around you and caring about you know, who your neighbors are and if it changes, you also care about things that might make your property value go down or just appreciate by less than it would have otherwise, right? And that, it turns out, has some problems for outsourcing the, uh, the control over production of new homes to people who have, in a sense, an investment in existing homes and maybe don't want to expand supply. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk more in a second about the forces that pressure less home building, essentially, the the forces that prevent housing supply from climbing. But I also want to follow up on some solutions that you include in the book here as well for how the U.S. government can essentially like put in place a framework for people to build wealth over time that's a little bit healthier than expecting your house to be like the vast majority of your wealth, which is obviously representative of like a, a really undiversified portfolio of assets, to use a bit of language from from the world of finance. So you have some ideas in here, uh, you know, about tax policy, about subsidizing other kinds of building wealth in other kinds of assets. Uh, can you kind of just go through some of the ideas in the book for what kinds of policy ideas are good for people to build wealth in a way that's a little bit less, you know, concentrated and and in a way that's a little bit more healthy. Yeah. So one of the more intuitive drawbacks to having all of your money tied up in your house is that it's not that easy to tap into and especially to sort of get small bits of that out when you need it, right? So for those of you who own a home, first thing you do is buy the house. And then the second thing is something breaks and you have to fix it. You need to have cash available to fix it, right? And taking out a home equity loan to buy a new refrigerator isn't necessarily that practical. So it would be really helpful if both owners and renters had more liquid savings, you know, just money sitting in their checking account or something that they could tap into for short-term needs, one option to do that is just to use the tax code to construct something that's maybe a little bit like a 401k in mechanism so that you put money aside every month out of your paycheck, but rather than it going to sort of your checking account where you can use it to buy groceries, it goes into essentially a a short-term savings account, right? So you might be able to use this for home repairs or car repairs or if you have a medical emergency. But we could incentivize people to be saving for these short-term needs, and that would be really helpful for both owners and renters. One of the other uh, sort of disadvantages, if you live in parts of the country where housing values aren't going up over time, you really need to be saving through other kinds of mechanisms, right? So if you bought a house 30 years ago in, say, downtown Cleveland, you actually would have been better off probably renting and putting your money into a diversified S&P index fund. We have incentives for people to save for retirement, but we could also encourage that a little bit more for people whose employers don't participate. Um, And in particular, for low-income households, do some sort of a match. So individual development accounts are an idea that's been around for a while that just provides essentially some seed capital and matching for lower-income households to set aside money for longer-term kinds of needs. And then the third thing is to counterbalance the racial wealth gap that's been created through homeownership is to think about doing some sort of a transfer to families with low wealth when they have kids. So baby bonds is sort of the shorthand term for this or child development accounts. The federal government or potentially state governments could give money to kids when they're born, and that helps them then have a little bit of seed capital by the time the kid turns 18. They have some money that they can use to go to college or to buy a house or to start a 
small business, but essentially as a subsidy for families who don't have family wealth. Um, and in particular, that would be beneficial for Black and Latino families who've been blocked from homeownership and the wealth building through homeownership for many, many generations. Let's talk about NIMBYism now. That's just sometimes uh, is the phrase used for not in my backyard. And this is generally the idea that homeowners in specific neighborhoods or specific locales tend to resist allowing more home building in their area. And it, there could be a few reasons for this. One is that they worry about the aesthetic change that new building might bring, uh, especially if this consists of apartment buildings, whereas they're used to living in an area where the apartment buildings are either very low or they're just like single family homes. Sometimes maybe they worry that more building means that the price of their homes, their biggest asset, again, might be reduced, that that they might lose money, essentially lose wealth over it. But in any case, they tend to resist allowing more local building, and that is under the control of local governments. And so a lot of like these NIMBY types will sometimes show up to neighborhood councils, neighborhood government type events, and try to argue against it where they exert a lot of a lot of influence. This is often sort of positioned as small d democracy uh, and even small d democracy in the finest tradition of like people in their local communities coming together to argue for what's best in their communities. You write in the book that that is somewhat misleading, that it's not really about democratic choice when you think about who's being excluded. I'd love for you to just like take us through that argument, the idea that this is not actually as democratic as maybe it seems. It's really not. Um, and some of this is the way that we've constructed the community participation process, right? So a, a pretty typical arrangement would be a developer wants to build an apartment building in a neighborhood. In order to get approval for that, they have to go through a, a public process, a community engagement process. So show up at a neighborhood meeting you know, with big posters, this is what I want to build. And the neighbors who live there already get a chance to say, I don't like that. It's too tall. There are going to be too many cars. This sort of process came out of the idea that people should have a voice in what happens in their neighborhood. But if we think about the way this plays out, very often these meetings are held on weeknights um, at times when, say, families who have small kids are giving them dinner and putting them to bed, people who work non-traditional jobs may be working a shift then. So it winds up that the people who show up on Tuesday night to spend five hours sitting around screaming about an apartment building don't necessarily look like the people who live in that city or even in that immediate neighborhood. They're older, um, so you get a lot more retirees. They're wealthier. They're whiter. They're more male. And so the people who show up at community meetings are not, in fact, a representative group. And of course, the other structural problem with this is we are allowing people who currently live in a community to vote on what happens in that community. This is designed not to take into account of people who don't yet live in the community but could if you built more apartments, right? And that both means people who are currently priced out of the community and would like to live there and would benefit directly from this, but they are not yet voters and they don't get to show up. And it also you know, expressly excludes future generations. It's the privilege of people who exist now and have voting power now as opposed to people who don't yet exist or aren't there. Yeah, and I guess this also brings up questions of citizenry, right, or citizenship. I'm not sure what the right word is. Uh, but the idea that 
you have to answer the question, what are you primarily a citizen of? If you are only a citizen of your immediate neighborhood, well, then sure, coming together to fight for the rights or for the privileges of only the people in your neighborhood would make a certain amount of sense. But if you are also a citizen of that city, well, then by arguing against housing in the neighborhood, you're going against the wishes of perhaps some folks who'd like to move into the neighborhood because it's closer to where the job opportunities are or there's better schools or whatever other reason they might want to go live there. And that's before you expand the scope even further about being a citizen of the state or of the country where clearly more housing supply is a good thing for society in aggregate. And again, by arguing against the supply, you are actively arguing against you know, the the sort of best interests of the country, society, et cetera. And so it's kind of an interesting idea of like concentric rings almost, concentric circles. If you limit yourself to just, for example, your immediate zone, then you really are going against what's best for the wider community. And, and it gets worse and worse the wider and wider you define the community, right? Yeah. And we can take uh, – there are sort of two concrete examples that are going on or have happened recently. So in New York, um, there was a process to upzone Soho, right, which is a really, really affluent and expensive neighborhood in Manhattan – a lot of the people who live in Soho now, so Soho was kind of you know converted from these big industrial buildings that got turned into uh, into artist lofts and then into some really pricey condos. So there are a bunch of people who live in Soho today who own these condos and still sort of think that you know I moved here in the 70s or 80s when this was a cheap neighborhood and I've invested in it and why should we be building more luxury condos? You know, there's this kind of irony of well, you may have bought into the neighborhood when it was still kind of gritty and artsy, but you're now sitting in a two million dollar condo and you're worried about luxury, like, what do you think a luxury condo is if not the one that you're living in currently? Um, You know, and that's a neighborhood that has fantastic access to transit. It's got lots of street life. It's got lots of retail. It's exactly the kind of neighborhood that lots of people would love to live in. You know, and the truth is, if we don't build more apartments in Soho, it's not like more people aren't going to want to move to New York. It's just that we're going to wind up building more of them in sort of moderate income neighborhoods in Brooklyn and Queens, the places that are experiencing some pressures of displacement. Like, why should Soho not have to build any more housing and sort of insulate itself from the city's growth overall and other neighborhoods that maybe don't have as much political power wind up bearing the brunt of most of the new development? Yeah, that makes sense. This idea that this ends up affecting the location of where housing gets built. Um, And you write that it it tends to happen in cities on the kind of urban fringe and that that can have some interesting effects. Can you kind of take us through that? Like, does does this look like wider and wider sprawl? Uh, What's sort of the the trade-offs involved with, yes, you're going to end up with more building anyway, but it's going to happen further and further away from the city's, you know, central economic areas, I guess. Yeah, um, that's that's very much what's been happening in most U.S. cities. So I've, I've looked at the patterns of development in Washington, D.C., where I live. Uh, the district, the central city, has actually been building a lot in the last decade. Um, but two-thirds of the new development has been happening in the outlying counties, places like Loudoun and Prince William County in Virginia, Frederick County, Maryland. And one of the kind of striking features is the D.C. metro area has a metro rail system, which is pretty good for American cities. Most of the new development is happening in counties that are outside the metro rail system. So they're not even connected to public transit because they're so far out. 
That means right away, people who are moving into those neighborhoods can't use the metro rail to commute to work. They're all going to be driving to work every day. The new houses that get built tend to be bigger because there's more space out there. So, you know, from an environmental perspective, we're building exactly in the wrong places, right? Car-dependent, low-density neighborhoods rather than in central cities and even the inner suburbs where you would have better access to transit. And we're also building big houses that use more energy to heat and cool rather than these smaller apartments that you would get in multifamily buildings, right? So I, one of the tensions of sort of the hyper-local control, you don't want new development in your neighborhood. Neighborhood. And often people will say, well, my neighborhood has lawns with trees and they're green. So, you know, we shouldn't cut down the trees to build an apartment building. But the answer is if you don't build an apartments in centrally located neighborhoods, you're going to cut down entire forests and, you know, convert farmland into new subdivisions, which is much, much worse for the planet. One solution I often see floated as a kind of compromise or potential compromise between like the NIMBY and the YIMBY, which stands for yes in my backyard, people who favor more building of housing, is the idea that you have a lot of commercial buildings that are now kind of emptying out. And that could be because of the pandemic. It could be because those buildings just aren't very, very good, very interesting anymore, whatever the case might be, that you could possibly convert some of those buildings into residential apartment buildings instead of office buildings. Or if you can't convert them, then you can tear them down and build residential on top of it so that it wouldn't build anything new where there isn't already some kind of structure in place. It would just essentially be converting space that's not being used for residential into something where people and families can actually live. Is that uh, something that you think is, is realistic? Is this something that could happen on a wide enough scale that it could affect these longer term trends of rising housing prices uh, that are affecting so many parts of the country? Probably not. Um, so we're likely to see some amount of this. Um, and you know, there are neighborhoods that we can look at today that have a pretty good residential population and a lot of housing that weren't residential before. Soho is a perfect example. Downtown Los Angeles you know, had a ton of office buildings when it was the financial capital in the 1920s. They sat vacant for decades, and now many of them have been converted into apartments and condos. Not all commercial buildings are easy to convert. Um, so if you think about like a 1980s building that's sort of a big square footprint and has uh, windows around the outside, but then a lot of interior space, that you can't actually turn into housing unless you basically make a big hole and turn the building into a donut. So you'd have to like carve out a core in the middle, which is really expensive and you need to tear it down. The costs of conversion are sort of one of the big barriers. So we're not likely to see massive conversion from commercial to residential at the scale to sort of make a dent in this. That's not a quick process either. This is not going to be like the next, you know, two to three years. There's also a little bit of a question whether that's a good idea, because once you convert space into residential, it almost never goes back, partly because then you've got people living there who you know, become NIMBYs and don't want you to build anything else. Um, you know, so over history, the neighborhoods that have transitioned from commercial to residential stay residential indefinitely. You know, someplace like Midtown Manhattan, if we think that 10 years from now we're going to need a decent amount of office space, you'd want to be careful about getting rid of all of that now and not having the option to go back. But I think there's I think there's actually more potential in some of the suburban areas. You know, some of the malls, right, old shopping malls are probably not going to come back. 
And they have a big footprint, and you could do a fairly large-scale redevelopment, probably tear down what's there, but do a mixture of housing with neighborhood-serving retail and commercial and even open spaces, public space for people to walk around. Those sorts of suburban retrofits offer a lot of potential, and that could get to a lot of the communities that need to be adding housing at higher density, um, many of which are actually close to the suburban job centers. That's something I see as having more potential. Yeah, You've written also in your book that it's hard for local governments to resist the pressure of the homeowners in their areas, the ones who argue against building more housing, but that there might be something that state governments and the federal government can do to help here. And I'd love to discuss what those possible ideas are. You know, a lot of like building and allowing buildings and building codes and zoning codes and things like that are under the control of local governments. So what, to to start with the federal government, can the federal government do uh, to try to influence those areas into allowing more building? The federal government has really limited direct levers over land use. That's just not something that's allocated to the federal government in the Constitution. Its biggest power is the power of the purse. Um, And in particular, if you think about the amount of money that the federal government gives out through transportation and infrastructure, right? So the federal government collects the gas tax, 20% of that goes to public transit, 80% of that goes to roads, and that gets distributed through both state departments of transportation and local governments. The federal government could put strings on that money. You only get money for roads and transit if you will allow development in a compact area around your transit, right? And on the transit side, this is really easy to make the case. Why is the federal government giving giant amounts of money to suburban communities that have commuter rail stations but won't let apartments be built anywhere within walking distance of the commuter rail station, right? So that seems to me like a no-brainer, and there's potentially a fair amount of money there. HUD's budget, unfortunately, doesn't reach as many places, and so it's probably limited. Um, it has a lot less money than the Department of Transportation. But the, That's the Department of Housing and Urban Development is, right, is HUD. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Okay. So the, the transit funding is probably the most promising from the federal lever. Otherwise, you know, it's got tools like enforcing fair housing, but those are pretty cumbersome and expensive to enforce at the scale to actually change land use patterns. Yeah, you, you're more optimistic about the potential role of state governments. Uh, so what, what can they do that would make a difference? State governments have a much wider toolbox. Um, one thing to remember is that local governments only have control over land use and zoning because state governments gave it to them in the first place. Um, so most states have either a, a law or a constitutional amendment that says, we're giving you this right to create zoning. Uh, and state- oh, So they can take it back, maybe. So they can take <laughs> it back. That's right. Um, and states actually didn't give sort of a uniform amount. So some states, kind of gave partial control, but they still exercise an overview of what local governments do, they could claw this back through things like preemption, right? So the state can say, local governments, you can write your zoning code, but you have to allow duplexes to be built everywhere in the state. We're not going to allow you to prohibit that, right? So that would be an example of a preemption that states could do. The other way they could do this is also through these fiscal carrots and sticks. State governments do a lot of redistributing resources across localities for things like schools and emergency public services and transit. And state governments could absolutely say, local governments, we are not going to give you a full match on your K-12 funding unless you allow apartments to be built 
in these high-performing school districts so that more kids can move there, right? They, they could do this. You have to get it passed through the state legislature, which it turns out is made up of representatives from the suburban communities that don't want to build. So the politics is not that easy to do, but this is the place where you have sort of the most levers and potentially could get something done. Yeah, the book really does take a very hard-nosed look at the political difficulties of implementing the reforms that you encourage. And I guess I'm kind of curious to know, after putting together the book and doing all this research, are you more optimistic or pessimistic that a lot of these ideas would actually come to pass? I mean, do you, do you see some of the the pressure of the last few years, which I think has gone kind of slightly in the direction of people who want more housing. Uh, That is largely a popular thing that people want. It's just that it gets lost in this kind of morass of of local and state politics. Uh, Yeah. Are you you more optimistic or pessimistic? I'm optimistic, uh, at least cautiously optimistic. Um, and, And partly because we're actually seeing some progress. So, you know, in the last five years, we've had both local and state efforts um, to allow more house, more diverse housing in particular, apartments, townhouses in more places, right? So Minneapolis passed a comprehensive plan in 2018 that legalized triplexes across the whole city. That was sort of a, a big milestone for, for local legislation. Um, Oregon, California, Massachusetts have all passed statewide zoning reforms of one flavor or another. New York, uh, the governor in introduced a reform this year, which immediately got shot down by the Long Island representatives. But, you know, sort of the first time that it was on the table, even places like Utah and North Carolina are pushing for this on a sort of business-friendly platform. Building more housing is good for business. It allows the economy to expand. So, you know, the state level of interest is very new. There's a lot more than we had even a few years ago. There's a much more organized kind of political movement around this. Lots of local groups all over the country forming to lobby their city council and their mayor to get engaged, both showing up at community meetings, but also getting engaged in the local electoral cycle to push candidates to take stances on this. That is really very new. We actually just did an inventory to kind of track how many of these groups exist. um, And more than half of them have been formed in the last two years, right? So there's a lot of energy coming mostly from younger how households, lots of renters under the age of 40 who don't imagine ever becoming a homeowner. So there is a fair amount of political pressure. And I think as long as housing continues to be this expensive, there's going to be increasing political pressure and attempts to hold elected officials to account. Yeah. And when talking about housing, uh, I think it's really important to look at racial and ethnic inequalities because this is a market where those inequalities are really quite dramatic. And, you know, just to look at the home ownership rate, the white home ownership rate is up in like the 70, 75% range, something like that. For black and Hispanic households, it's somewhere in like the 40 to 50% range. Just a huge difference. And again, we're talking about an asset that makes up the biggest asset of a lot of people's kind of overall net wealth. And so it's caught up in a lot of different things. And certainly in the case of the housing market, it's caught up in a legacy of discrimination, racism, redlining, you know, a lot of other deliberate government policies that have led to a housing market where these discrepancies are just enormous. And even today, as you write in the book, and I'm I'm quoting you here, 
the largest housing subsidy in the United States, the mortgage interest deduction, flows mostly to affluent white households, further exacerbating the racial wealth gap, unquote. So I, I just kind of love to get your thinking on where housing fits into this like broader landscape of racial and ethnic inequalities in the economy. And what can we do about this? Yeah, there are at least three ways that we see really big racial discrepancies in housing. One, as you pointed out, is the homeownership rate, that black households in particular have the lowest homeownership rate of any ethnic group in the U.S., 30 percentage point gap, and black homeowners have only about half of the home equity that white homeowners do. So when they own their homes, they don't have as much from it, right? And that that really is like, that is the racial wealth gap right there. It's about homeownership. You know, the second way we see this showing up is that because black households are, and Latino households are more likely to be renters, zoning rules that prohibit apartments and rental housing are particularly difficult for them, right? So black and Latino families with kids have a really hard time getting access to neighborhoods with good performing public schools, with you know high quality access to healthcare and jobs and the rest of that. And so the zoning rules, although they do not on the face of it discriminate by race, because race and income are so correlated, exclusionary zoning directly impacts black and Latino households in particular. Um, and then the third way we see this is sort of the overlap between where land is cheap because of climate risk. Um, So in cities like Houston and New Orleans, for instance, Black and Latino households are more likely to live in parts of the city that experience frequent flooding from hurricanes. Um, And so they are at much higher risk of climate-related damage because of the location of where they live. And again, that's where they can afford to live. And in a lot of cities, you know, sort of overlay, um, you know, things like the, the tree canopy, which insulates people from high heat with redlining maps. Um, And historically, Black and Latino neighborhoods are at higher risk of heat waves and not having protection from that because of the previous layers of discrimination. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, that point about the environmental inequality, if that's the right phrase for it. But I guess the inequality of exposure to the environment. Uh, Another quote from your book, you write, millions of homes have been built in parts of the country that frequently and predictably suffer from severe weather and natural disasters, areas adjacent to rivers and oceans that are prone to flooding, western lands at high risk of wildfires. I think a lot of people maybe don't connect these two things, that there are all these systematic problems, these structural problems in the housing market and this kind of environmental exposure that we see each year has gotten quite bad, especially in terms of wildfires in the last few years, but also with the increasing frequency of hurricanes and things of that nature. But this is directly connected to these kinds of structural problems in the housing markets. And also, I mean, if I, I think you also write uh, a lack of appropriate, you know, regulations on where housing is built as well, right? It's kind of a mix of those two things. Yeah, absolutely. And the West is the easiest place to see this, you know, sort of on a map. You know, the fact that San Francisco hasn't been building enough homes, like the city of San Francisco is at relatively low risk of fire because it's, you know, already built out, right? So it's lots of concrete and steel and so forth. 
San Francisco hasn't been adding enough homes. That pushes the new development farther and farther into what they call the wildlife urban interface, the WUI. Um, so you get all of these houses built in places where they're right on the edge of wildfires, and those are the places at higher risk of, of burning. And so we have a larger share of people and homes that are on sort of the, the outskirts of urban areas that are at higher risk of damage, you know, more and more homes being built in flood-prone areas in places like South Florida. Um, and so, you know, those are a direct response of not building homes in the safer places. We push the demand into these dangerous places. And we have all sorts of incentives for, you know, land use regulations should take some of those places offline for building, but they don't. That's actually the one thing that we're not doing with our zoning. Um, and then we have not adequate underwriting of mortgages to take account for the climate risk um, and federal disaster recovery programs, which often will only pay you to rebuild in the same location, even though that's a location where we know you're likely to get hit again. Yeah. You also write that, yes, of course, you know, it would be better if more market rate housing could be built because of zoning restrictions. It made more sense. But you do say that there is a potential role for the government to be involved in creating more affordable housing, that, that it's OK to have sort of to, to push on both fronts, essentially. Could you kind of take us through that relationship uh, between market rate housing versus how much uh, affordable rate housing should be built by the government and sort of what, what the right kind of mix of those things could be? Yeah. So the, the real downside of just relying on the market to build housing is that the poorest 20 percent of households don't earn enough to afford it. Um, so the, you know, the, the bottom 20 percent everywhere in the country, not just in expensive places, but everywhere, earns so little that they can't afford what you should think of as kind of the operating costs for a basic apartment, right? So the landlord has to pay the mortgage and the property taxes. If your income isn't enough to cover that, then you simply can't afford market rate housing. And that's true for about a fifth of our households today. So for them, because this is essentially a gap between costs and income, the best way to do that is to plug the gap with a subsidy. You know, the easiest thing to do is just give poor people money, um, send them a check, say through the child tax credit, and let them then pay their rent and buy food and other things that they need. We have a bunch of programs that also can build housing that has a subsidy and only low-income households can live in it. Those programs are pretty expensive per household served. Um, and in lots of places in the US, if we just allowed the market to build a ton of rental apartments and gave people money to pay the rent, that would actually be OK. right? Places like New York, there's more of a role for housing that is owned either by public or nonprofit entities who don't want to raise the rent as much as the market can bear, right? but hold some housing that's affordable to low-income households. And, and they still have to be subsidized to do this because they can't pay for the cost of housing unless there's a subsidy beyond what households can pay. Yeah, I guess the, the thing that, that I thought of just then was that, you know, if you do go the, the subsidy route of just giving people money and then letting them you know, sort out paying their own rent, uh, if it's not paired with these other more sensible ideas for getting more market rate housing out there, you might just be increasing demand again for housing without having that supply side response. And it might just keep jacking up the price of housing. And it, the sort of utility you get from that might be sort of diminished, right? That if if you go the route of bolstering demand and you don't have some other kind of supply side response, whether it is undoing bad zoning codes or investing in public housing, you might just be perpetuating the problem, right? Yeah. And we know that that's a possibility in part because um, 
you know, some of the households who get vouchers from the federal government now aren't able to find a landlord to rent to them, you know, which is sort of if a landlord gets 10 applicants for every apartment they have available, nine people aren't going to get it. And some of those may have vouchers, right? So you can't actually house everybody without having enough homes. Um, but I think the short-term conundrum is we should be giving more subsidy to low-income households, and we could do that tomorrow if Congress were willing to. We couldn't provide the number of homes that you need immediately. So there's likely to be some period, even if we institute these zoning reforms, it'll take a while for that to show up on the supply side. In the short run, you could have an increase in rents. And how do you deal with that kind of short-term imbalance? That's, I, I don't have a solution to that. That's a really hard problem. But I think it's good for us to go into it with our eyes open and realize you know, more subsidy without more supply is not, in fact, the solution. Even if we increase supply, we're going to have a short-term problem, and we need to be creative about that. What surprised you most when looking into the housing market as you were writing this book? So the piece of it that was probably newest to me was looking at some of the climate overlays. Um, And I will say that it became very hard for me to sleep when I was writing that chapter because once you realize how much risk there is, not just financial risk, but also human risk and how much worse it's getting over time, and that like we just don't have systems that are set up to deal with that, um, it it made me really nervous. (laughs) And I I don't think we've fully grappled with all of the ways in which climate is going to make our current housing inadequate. So last fall with Hurricane Ida, New York had a bunch of people who live in basement apartments and the apartments flooded and people couldn't get out in time, right? People were living in basement apartments because it's cheap, it's what they can afford, but they're not set up to withstand flooding from a hurricane. We didn't have places for people to go to. Pacific Northwest is going to have increasing heat and they've got a lot of homes without air conditioning, right? So a bunch of people died because their homes don't have an air conditioning, which is not a technical problem. Like we know how to fix that, but we haven't yet grappled with the fact that our housing is not appropriate for a changing climate. There's completely inadequate funding to retrofit the homes that we already have, right? We keep building in places where homes are going to get flooded or burned down. The scale of this is just enormous. And I think None of the entities that could solve this have either kind of gotten enough political conviction or really grappled with the scale of changes that we're going to need to fix it. Do you sense, though, that the intellectual attention that's being brought to this by policymakers, by the media, by neighborhood associations themselves in a lot of parts of the country are shifting in the direction of asking why there isn't more housing supply. In other words, I think if you would have told somebody 10 years ago that there was this NIMBY versus YIMBY thing going on, I think a lot of people would have just been confused by it. There would have been some people who follow the housing market carefully or whatever who would have known what you were talking about. But a lot of people just would have been baffled by what all these acronyms are. I think five years ago, people would have been catching on. And now this seems to just be part of like, the standard lexicon that, you know, even non-economist types use when discussing housing markets. Uh, You know, I I occasionally will informally ask a bunch of my friends what they think about this, uh, people who are renters and people who are homeowners, and just see. But they, they never ask me to define those terms anymore. And that's interesting to me. It seems like the sort of terms of the debate are a little bit clear and more widely known. Do you think that's the case? 
Absolutely. I mean, even from five years ago or four years ago, this is much more politically salient. Because housing has gotten more expensive, more people in more parts of the country are facing this. It's gone higher up the income scale. And so there are more people who are sort of middle income renters who are aware of the of the supply crunch. One sort of informal way to measure this is in the 2020 election, all of the Democratic candidates in the primary had a housing platform, which by itself is new, and every single one of them had something in their housing platform about supply and the effects of exclusionary zoning. Right? That has never happened, at least in my lifetime. Uh, and you know, I, I think it's helpful to have people with high visibility who have big audiences talking about this, because this does get out to a much wider audience than just you know housing Twitter. And it's also, I think, helpful, though, to have people having conversations with their friends and neighbors, because in order to change policy, we have to change hearts and minds. You're much more likely to persuade somebody who you know on this than having fights on Twitter. Um, you know, So one of the things that I think is promising is that a lot of the younger renter households who feel this can talk to their parents and grandparents or their older coworkers and explain, it's not that I'm blowing all my money on avocado toast. It actually is that much more expensive to buy my first house than it was for you. And you know, this is a systematic problem, not kind of a failing of individual savings or behavior. And that that way there might be a kind of communication across generations to you know bring people a little bit closer into alignment on this because it is a little bit of a generational issue. I mean, I think millennials certainly who are in their like still prime home buying years now uh, didn't start buying their first homes until later in the process than when their parents were buying homes. You know, their parents may have bought homes in their 20s. Millennials tend to be in their late 20s or early 30s or mid-30s, that kind of thing, right? Like there, there is a generational component here. There is a generational component, yeah. And I, I, because of that, the politics are sometimes a little bit fraught. Um, but I think, you know, talking to people within your family is more likely to make a connection, you know. And some of this also, if, if we anticipate that the U.S. is going to remain a majority homeowner country, you know, looking at the demographics of younger generations raises some questions about that, right? So the younger generation is racially much more diverse than previous generations. Black and Latino households have been less likely to own their homes and to buy later in life. So we sort of see this, this shift that the U.S. is going to have a declining homeownership rate probably over the next several years. And in some senses, a more renter-oriented voter body should start leading to some differences in policy. Last question. Uh, you've been covering housing for some time. I'm curious to know what brought you to the topic in the first place, uh, whether it was some kind of a personal experience or even a frustration with housing or if it was an intellectual uh, fascination. So my first job uh, out of college, I got hired by a company called Apt Associates um, to work in their public housing strategic consulting group. And I had never heard of public housing. I didn't know anything about it. I knew nothing about real estate. But it was really fascinating to go around the country to different housing authorities and look at the situations they had. It's like Boston had a 10-year wait list and nobody could get in. St. Louis had a bunch of vacant apartments and was trying to tear down their public housing. Um, and so I got hooked on kind of the, the spatial nature of cities and understanding why cities look different from one another. Um, and my, my introduction to zoning, I wrote my dissertation on zoning in Boston suburbs. If that doesn't radicalize you, I don't know what will. <laughs> so the topic grabbed you early and just never let go. Pretty much. I think that's a great place to end. Jenny Schutz, thanks so much for being on The New Bazaar. This was great. Thanks, Cardiff. It was fun.
And that's it for today's show. You can find links to Jenny's book, Fixer Upper, in the show notes for this episode. New Bazaar is a production of Bizarre Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. And if you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.